Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Natalie Dalzicki. And I'm Landry Ayers. Jordan Peele stepped out of his Key and Peele comfort zone to bring us not one, but two genre-defying horror films. Get Out cleverly uses common horror tropes to reveal truths about how damaging racism still is in our modern world. Us, as the title suggests, tells a story about how neglecting to come to grips with our past makes us our own worst enemies. Joining us today for a deep thriller discussion is film critic and culture reporter at Vox.com, Alyssa Wilkinson. Hey, it's good to be here. And senior contributor at Film School Rejects, Kiera Wardlow. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, Jordan Peele's movies, Get Out and Us, that we'll be talking about today, uh, his debuts in the horror genre as a filmmaker, both reinvigorated and shone a light on a genre that has been around for a long time but has not nearly been appreciated by a mass audience as it now has hopefully begun to be and that is the genre of black horror um it even inspired a class i believe at ucla that integrates get out into the curriculum but is about the many films uh in cinema history in the genre of black horror why is it horror is considered a primarily white genre? You know, there have been black faces in horror for basically as long as horror has been a genre, but they've been white stories. So it's, you know, horror is, there's an assumption for what the audience is afraid of in a horror film of what's going to terrify people. So you kind of have to have a standard in mind of who your audience is and, and historically, in American horror film, it's been a white audience. It's been what will scare this white middle-class audience um, has been kind of the, the audience and the way that horror films have been um, created. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's really reflective of the industry at large, um, which, you know, has basically assumed that for like a century that the kind of default viewer of a movie is a white person and thus tailored the, you know, what, what's scary to white people um, and, um, and disregarded, you know, kind of what maybe was going on in society, because we have to remember that horror is a genre about that really captures our anxieties as people, both kind of individuals living in bodies and also in a social manner. And then on top of it, there's always been this presumption that, um, that like people, white people don't see movies that star black people. Uh, that's been a really long running presumption, even in the face of obvious, you know, kind of evidence in the other direction. It's been a really long running um, presumption in Hollywood. So those things really have contributed to what is um, an overwhelmingly white centric genre. And I think part of what was so brilliant about Get Out is that, you know, Jordan Peele just easily is one of the better horror filmmakers um, that I've ever seen working. But he also figured out how to evoke a feeling that maybe in the past uh, a Hollywood executive would have said, oh, well, you know, white people aren't going to go see that movie. I also think that Peel has an exceptional ability to take snippets from all types of horror genres. Mm. And by that, I mean, and both Get Out and in Us, which I'm sure we're, we're going to dive into both as we go on here, but he'll take snippets from each type of horror, whether it's intruder comes into the house or whether it's doppelgangers and this idea of being like fearful of yourself or what have you. But I think he does a really good job, not only of using 
symbols throughout these two horror films, but also taking interesting tidbits from other very famous movies within the genre. I mean, I would agree with that. I think the thing is, is that he hits that sweet spot, right? Between commercially viable and really commercially successful and like kind of critically acclaimed and that there's kind of, there's layers and there's food for thought in his films. And I think the key to that is his way of incorporating the familiar because I think fundamentally we do kind of like familiar stories, but we want them to be new enough or different enough that we don't feel like we're watching the same thing over again, you know, like it's repetitive. Um, And I think that a key thing that's missed out in that kind of, in many ways, still prevailing stereotype that, oh, you know, white audiences aren't going to want to watch a film with black leads with, you know, non-white kind of principal roles is that showing diverse perspectives and having stories told by diverse creators is actually a great way to sort of tell a very similar story, but with that fresh perspective that makes it feel a little new and a little different and something, you know, that kind of hits that sweet spot between being kind of too out there and too familiar. Yeah, I agree. And I also wanted to note that one of the genres he does really well is body horror. And that's what Get Out really is, is is a look at um, uh, the the bigger kind of social uh, I don't want to use the word phenomenon, this, the social ill of, of racism, but through the lens of body horror, which really gets at, you know, that this is about the body you live in and the way you are presented to the world and also who's looking at you and what they're thinking and what they want from you. Um, yeah, I, I felt like I was shivering by the time I got out of the first screening of Get Out uh, because I felt it so much in my body. And that was a really phenomenal experience. I was just going to say that, you know, I agree that it's a body horror fundamentally and talking about, you know, kind of body invasion and someone taking over your body. But one thing that really stuck out to me more rewatching the film, you know, the first time you're watching it, you're still trying to figure out exactly what's going on and, and what have you. But then rewatching it is the way that he uses dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I'm, I'm a big dialogue person and like how words are being used. And so much of the, the sense of discomfort or that something's weird is going on when he's talking to the other black people who've already, you know, been sort of brainwashed and occupied and, and become, you know, just sort of bystanders within their own bodies, is he goes to them as, you know, another Black person. He tries to interact with them as another mm-hmm. Black person, and they react like white people reacting to a Black mm-hmm. person mm-hmm. in the actual dialogue. Like, th- I think there's that one exchange where he says, oh, I didn't mean to snitch on you. <laughs> and then, you know, she goes, oh, you, t- you mean tattletale? Like, I I just think that there's so much there that I really appreciated so much more, you know, the second time around and kind of knowing where it was going. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I you can see once you know the the twist, the fact that there are these white personalities that have been transplanted into these uh, these black people's bodies and those personalities or at least vestiges of them are still locked inside in the sunken place watching as as sort of observers of this entire scenario going around re-watching it it takes on a whole new meaning of even when there's not dialogue like for instance when Georgina when the tears begin to come out of her eyes there's this there's this moment of fighting going on where it's like that that last bit of 
personality that is still on the inside is almost pushing its way out. And then the the flash, which to me, you know, becomes very reminiscent of, you know, the camera motifs and lenses, which sort of bring to mind uh, the sort of meta text of of the movie being about, you know, horror films and what they mean and what they show and that social context that it exists in. Um, it, it sort of tries to bring them out of that and and really does sort of it is emblematic of what the film is trying to do, not only in the plot of it, but in the social context that it exists in. And I appreciated it and really enjoyed a lot of the the plot and what it was saying on that surface level the first time I saw it. But I was pleasantly surprised how much I enjoyed it on a second watch because I don't watch a lot of horror movies generally on my own anyway (laughs) a little bit that's you're not wrong um but i also there's a part of me that always is kind of like well am i gonna enjoy it as much the next time you know part of the initial thrill of it comes from being on the edge of your seat not knowing what's coming next the subversion of expectations uh or or playing with those but it, it really does read even more deeply on a second and third watch through which i really really appreciated i also think that the movie is so visceral in a sense and what makes it such a groundbreaking horror film is that very that very fact i think that landry just hinted at is that this is one of the few horror films i can think of that i actually enjoy re-watching uh, a lot of horror films like i just saw midsummer i've seen hereditary a lot of those like were shocking and very disturbing with the first watch. And I came away with the first watch being like, well, I never really need to see that again. Cause now I like, I know everything that happened and it's not, it's the context isn't as deep. And because this movie is so visceral when you're watching, you get to, it, it feels like you're, it, you're going through the experience. And uh, that's just a credit to not only Peel's work, but everyone who worked on the film And I also think another thing that Landry brought up that I was hoping we could delve into more is this larger idea of sight. Landry brought up like the camera flashing and um, how Chris is obviously a photographer. And in the in the end, what what happens is like the person, the white uh, personality that like auctions that wins the auction for Chris uh, once his once his eyes because he's he's a blind artist And it's this whole idea that um, I believe that I'm not sure if this is the exact quote, but um, the blind artist was like, I don't really I don't really need your body. What I want is I want to see through your eyes. I want to see the world the way you see it, which was which was such a great well, not it was also like the climax of the movie, but it was such a great line. And I probably I'm definitely jumbled it. But I what what did you guys think of the the symbols of sight and what do you think the larger meaning throughout the film that what do you think their larger meaning was well i i also think it's interesting just in particular is that he's not necessarily even an artist himself he is an art dealer and he even says at one point like i pitched to national geographic 14 times before i realized i didn't have like the gift he calls it but that he is a person that wants to take something from chris to sort of reappropriate his gaze and then profit off of it um, as, as opposed to actually create something on his own, which is, I think, another commentary that could definitely be made. The thing that's interesting to me about that whole 
kind of element of the story is to me, it feels very reminiscent of um, a very kind of classic, but not very well-remembered novel called Trilby, um, Mm -hmm. which is where the term Svengali comes from, um, which is what kind of its biggest lasting legacy in the character Svengali. It's a bit of a a anti-Semitic stereotype, but it's, he's this maestro, but he can't sing. And there's this woman who's tone deaf, but has this great voice. So he hypnotizes her to use her like a puppet or like an instrument. And that's kind of the whole story. And it was huge. It was like the biggest bestseller of its era. It kind of died out. But it's, again, to me, I think with Jordan Peele, like there's these threads and whether they're conscious or it's just, you know, it's very possible for different writers and creatives to have this, like the same or very similar ideas. Um, But either whether it's a conscious kind of reference or it's just, you know, coming up with the same sort of thing that's echoing something else that's been done already it's like it's tapping into those kind of historically very popular themes but putting a very different twist on them and i mean i think as his perspective as a you know a black man who's been working in the entertainment industry for a long time already at this point i think there's commentary specific to his experience in that too in you know it's this mostly predominantly overwhelmingly white system that now sees particular value in your perspective as a black person but they still want to use it for their own aims and use it as a tool mm-hmm. you know um so mm-hmm. i think there's a lot a lot there to that aspect of the story yeah i mean this is very surface level uh but it's just funny to me i, I recently watched gremlins for the first time which is which is another <laughs> horror film. and you know that that thing with the flashing camera comes up again in that film and i was like where have i seen this before and then i realized it was get out. i was like well that's not the same thing although maybe it is i don't know there's a some kind of analysis to be done there um but i you know i think to your point kara um there's this theme of eyes and sight and looking and you know the photography and the framing of an image is um so much about who's doing the looking and who's being looked at and this film is so much about that right and it's making a larger point about the industry um and who's been allowed to do that while also making like uh, you know, and we have to say this is a profoundly entertaining film. It's very funny. It's th- the last film I can remember in kind of recent memory that managed to have like kind of instant catchphrases <laughs> in it. Um, you know, oh, the yeah. line about like voting for Obama the third time, not to mention the idea of being in the sunken place. Like that was as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, there we go. That's the meme. Um, but right. It's, but they actually mean something. Right. Um, but yeah, that kind of idea of like who's getting to do looking and why and also like you're saying where when the perspective changes um and suddenly maybe something that would have normally been pushed off to the side of the screen is now in the middle of the screen but then the question is why is it in the middle of the screen and that's so much of what this movie gets at and i think um you know in particular black filmmakers have been good at um bringing that into uh, the way that we think about film um, through actually making films about it, um, you know, and it's another way of kind of challenging what we, well, what we white people would expect when we go to the theater um, and challenging it and saying, like, maybe, maybe you weren't aware you were being centered and we're going to make you aware of that. And, you know, it's good. It's it makes us uncomfortable. And then he manages to make us really uncomfortable also scare us and also make us laugh a lot. 
as as soon as you mentioned it, it sort of clicked with me. I don't think that the Gremlins illusion actually it it may not be on accident. I think it could definitely <laughs> be on purpose because there is a great Key and Peele sketch if you go back and watch an episode where Jordan Peele plays a consultant that is brought on to punch up the script for Gremlins 2 and they basically just they basically just pull out all of these things that are actually in Gremlins 2 and say like ooh what if we did this and it's hilarious and just sort of highlights the absurdity of that movie so I would not be surprised if Jordan Peele is a big Gremlins fan Mm -hmm. and had to slide that in Um, but you brought that uh, you bring up the idea of the intense level of comedy that is in the movie and that's one thing i really really appreciate and obviously jordan peele has a lot of experience with both of these genres that i mean when you first think about them you're like how could they be you know they're two completely opposite sort of feelings but they do employ a lot of similar techniques and are about playing with expectations and surprising you and subverting you what is do you do you find the purpose of the role of comedy in this movie and in particular one that i'm curious about is what do you what do you think of the character rod and and what role does he play because he is just the traditional comic relief at first but he very much serves an important story role i think as well he's also everyone's tsa agent come on <laughs> <laughs> he handles it yeah i mean that's the thing about rod right is in a way I mean, he's kind of a bit of a conspiracy theorist because he has some ideas that are crazy, but then in the end, they also end up being true. So I I think it's this interesting sort of combination of being sort of the comic relief, but also like the the straight man and like the sense of like, he's the voice of reason, um, ultimately, and the, the one who kind of saves the day. And, you know, I think, especially for sort of black audiences, there can be parts where when Chris is like still sticking around, at the house when all this stuff's gone down that he's not just been like oh no i'm getting out of here you know like that you can just get a bit fed up with him on that front of like seriously my dude you're you're still there um so then there's rod who you can kind of identify with because he's being the voice of reason being like something weird is going on you need to leave um Mm -hmm. so i mean i think that that's a very interesting character like i think it's very important that his character is there yeah i remember reading too that the initial ending of this was not going to end the way it did. Um, because what, yeah, because when you watch the movie, right, there's the we sort of have this, you know, he's they're crawling away from the house, everything's gone down, and um, he's finally made it out. We're so happy for him, and then the sirens you know, or the car pulls up and, and we're like, Oh no, (laughs) you know, like we know what happens when the cops show up, um, especially in this context. And, um, I think it was a conscious choice. I don't actually remember what Peel has said about this, but I know that this has come up several times in discussions of the film that initially that was Rod was not coming to save the day. Um, it was going to sort of be like, what might be a more realistic ending, unfortunately. And um, they punted that. Um, I'm guessing it didn't test very well with audiences, but it also mm. is just kind of good to know when you're watching that, that that soaring feeling of relief you have when he gets out of the car is not is not necessarily what the ending was intended to be. I mean, I feel like that, though, is a pretty standard Hollywood story for what happens to an ending, though. I mean, there are other 
horror films, you know, that you hear are similar where it's like it was gonna be this downbeat ending, but then they tested with like, like, no, we can't do that. Like twenty eight days later had like a similar thing happen. The protagonist was supposed to die, but then they're like, No. Mm-hmm. That's that people were saying that tested too poorly. He lives now and it's like a, it's a bit of a weirdly upbeat ending. But I think again, in the context of like the history of horror films, there's an interesting thing that this one does when Rod does come save the day at the end, when you see, you know, the flashing lights and you're like, oh no, the cops, this is going to go terribly. And then instead it's Rod there to save the day. It, it kind of, to me, feels like an inverse of what happens at the end of Night of the Living Dead, mm. which is probably, oh, yeah. you know, one, one of the first kind of iconic starring, you know, black lead roles in like an iconic American horror film. And he thinks that rescue is coming and instead he gets, you know, shot and killed and that's the end. And that was a huge twist ending. So I think there's something interesting there and how the ending of Get Out almost feels like the inverse of that. So in like preparation for for this podcast, I was reading up on a I think Alyssa might have alluded to it, but I was reading up on a I believe it was a GQ interview that Peel did about his choice of the ending because they actually had an alternate ending, like Alyssa said, where um, Chris actually ends up going to jail and he there's um, a scene in it. I, I watched the alternate ending. There's a scene in it that uh, Chris is talking to Rod and Chris is in a orange jumpsuit and they're um, they're in the. Uh, where they're talking through a telephone, but looking through each other through glass in Mm. prison. And uh, Chris is saying, you know, I got out of there. Like I, I got out of there. So, and to me, I won, there's no reason for you to like fight this case. Like I got out of there. So I, in my eyes, I won. Peel had said in the interview that he, they really liked that ending and thought it was powerful and it was a powerful scene. But by the time they had rolled around to when the movie was coming out, with the political climate that the movie was released in, um, especially with police brutality and a lot of pessimism that he thought America needed a more optimistic ending. And he thought the ending they created originally was kind of like a cop out, the words he used, but I, he wanted to leave a more optimistic ending because he knew everyone was going to assume the ending. And he thought, that uh, uh, he said the difference between like a good and great movie is that you can, there'll still be twists and the ending will still be able to make you think. Whereas like, I, I know for me, for sure, the first thing I thought was, oh, cops pulled up. Like I could have predicted this ending 10 minutes ago. Um, and he did exactly opposite, which makes it, makes it a great ending. Um, not to mention, I love the character Rod, but you know, um, so I just thought it was interesting that he actually admitted to looking at the climate in which the movie was being released in, in terms of like a political climate and thought, thought that they should change direction a little bit. Um, which I think, I mean, again, speaks to what a great director he was, um, for this film and for us as well. What does the sunken place represent? Like Alyssa was saying, like it, it, it was an instant meme and you see you see it kind of like taken up in popular culture rather quickly. But what does it actually represent? I mean, I think it's one of those things, you know, where I, I haven't like looked into, you know, obviously go with kind of if Jordan Peele's made a statement about what it's supposed to mean. You know, that's kind of the, the word of God in the scenario. And that's what you should you should go with. Uh, for me, it's one of those things where. I think it's just kind of tapping into a very sort of base fear of not being in control, of not having any 
you know, saying anything of just being at the mercy of other people of not having agency. Um, and not because, you know, of a lack of will or interest in it, but just because you don't have any power, um, and you don't have any control. And so I think that there's just sort of a very fundamental kind of fear that that taps into like feeling like life is just something that you can't control and feeling helpless. Um, and I do think too, there's like a kind of in the history of horror, a connection with like kind of the, the Haitian concept of zombie, which was brought to American audiences in like the thirties with some very, like I walked with a zombie and white zombie that are these, you know, very whitewashed takes on, on that tradition. But again, it's the idea of someone being able to like your body still being active, but not your own, someone else having control over you. Yeah, I think that's really smart. And it is interesting to think about the the zombie kind of history of the zombie uh, in in this respect to this film. But um, yeah, because I was going to say, you know, I sort of thought of it as a living grave <laughs> of a kind. Um, yeah, you know, like, below level, that's what a sunken place is. And um, it's this idea, like what happens to um, uh, Lakeith Stanfield's character where he, you know, he clearly is alive, but he's been stripped of everything that made him him, um, except for his actual physical body. And that uh, that's a living death. And um, I think, you know, the ref that reference certainly brings to mind death and coffins and things like that for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and we see that in multiple characters. It's not just, not just the one. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's sort of what I, I had thought about. And I think that, um, the living death is what a zombie is. And, and so there, there's a strong connection there. One thing that, uh, got brought up before was the idea that, uh, Rod is sort of a conspiracy theorist, but I, one thing that gets also, it also sort of, parallels an idea that gets hinted at in the other movie that we wanted to talk about which is us um where spoiler alert in case you haven't seen the movie by the end we find out that the tethered which is this like mirrored quasi zombie doppelganger-esque uh, group of people that represents basically the other half of of humanity um that was created by the government to control them but that that went wrong um, which in and of itself sounds like a conspiracy theory, but the fact that the daughter in the family then at one point brings up like, well, you know, the government puts fluoride in our water so they can control our minds. But in the <laughs> end it, and everyone sort of like brushes her off. But then in the end, there is a government conspiracy to control people's minds with something that they've created. Um, so what does that sort of flip of the switch um, and sort of making that, uh, like you said, the comic relief turn into the the straight man in this type of scenario? What does that do for Jordan Peele's movies? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a difficult one just because, right, there's like the fun, uplifting side, but there's also, I think, a dark side to that. Um, you know, again, looking at it from you know, the, the black perspective is there is a distrust of a lot of institutions that comes from a very historically valid place. You know, you look at something like the Tuskegee syphilis study and like other things where there have been these institutions that have done these 
outrageous and like, you know, forced sterilizations of, you know, women of color and like where there is a very valid distrust of institutions, but then it can also backfire because then, you know, that also leads to things of like not seeking out other forms of aid that then also leads to further problems, but you can understand why they distrust them. I mean, like, you know, I live, I live in Harlem and I was walking down the street the other day and there was a man handing out, you know, kind of some sort of leaflet about like, why not to trust, you know, any vaccines and like other sorts of conspiracy theories. And you can understand why you have that higher level of distrust because there is this historical precedent and there's been studies even done that like in particular communities that had these things happen to them, the distrust stays higher. Um, so it's, it's a very relevant commentary to have a figure like Rod, you know, like, you know, people like him and that he becomes like kind of the truth teller in these sorts of stories. Like, again, historically it makes sense in a way, but then also there's a party that's like, oh, you know, like it's, it's just, it's, it's, that's a kind of a hard one. And I think again, that's why it's so effective because it's funny, but there's also this darker side to it that gives it that further depth. Um, you know, and, and really makes it an interesting, um, you know, character. Yeah, I um, I was listening to something recently and <laughs> someone was pointing out that, you know, the kind of bonkers <laughs> thing about some of the conspiracy theories that run amok these days is that it's it is true that there are conspiracies <laughs> against people. It's just that the ones right. that actually turn out to be true are never the ones that people get obsessed with um, in in the period of time. But yeah, like people have been stalked by the FBI. People have been, you know, essentially poisoned. Um, people have been disappeared. These things happen, right? Um, but in, you know, if we're like on Facebook looking at conspiracies right now, a lot of those, sure, they might manifest anxieties people have, but they're disconnected from um, the real historical facts that, you know, and sometimes they fly in opposition to the idea of the real historical facts that have actually happened, um, that were actual conspiracies being conducted in plain sight um, against or, you know, at least plain sight of some people um, historically. And I, you know, I think that's a an interesting way to think about it. Um, it sort of makes me think like, if people are talking about the conspiracy theory, that's probably not real. But if they're not talking about it, then that's the one you right. should go looking for. Um, uh, yeah, I think you're totally right. And so I think, you know, having the and I do also think that having the guy who's saying the wacky things turn out to be the right one um, is really indicative of this feeling where <laughs> where you're like, am I crazy or is this real you know um and then you find out it is real and it's this kind of relief um and i i think about that um a lot because it pops up also in a lot of pop culture about cults these days where you'll actually see stories where the cult seems you know nuts and then it turns out that that cult actually was right all along um and i think it speaks to people's just you know at times feeling totally adrift from and anything could be true <laughs> we don't even know anymore um and and that is a difficult place to live in i i think also with conspiracy theories and the idea of like mis mistrust of institutions or let's call it mistrust of the state or however you want to phrase it is is pretty it's pretty evident but subtle in, in some of these Peel films. So for the police, for instance, I, I think 
actually, yeah, they're mentioned in both films. I'm thinking about it in Us, where um, they when they first see their doppelgangers like in the driveway and they're in they're in the red jumpsuits and they try to call the police and the police are like, oh, it's going to be 20 minutes. Um, and then like to me, like and I forget what the response was. It was a, it was a witty line. The the dad in the family had said, um, but then even later in the film, when after there the, the gory scene where they're um the white family that they are vacationing with is murdered by their own doppelgangers and then uh peel brilliantly puts in the alexa turns on or whatever the google home turns on and start uh, starts playing um nwa's f the police which i yeah. thought uh, we can talk about this in length of peel's excellent scores and the timing of his music which is huge in <laughs> mm-hmm. horror films because like a, a lot of a lot of the emotions evoked throughout horror films have to do with the sound and the music and the the music that calms you and then jolts you and uh but he has some very subtle messages i think uh, specifically about the police and we can call that an institution maybe that you can mistrust in, in this scenario that I think are subtle enough that it's not like in your face, but mm-hmm. it, it, it's there. If that makes sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. For me, I think it just it is coming from the story from the perspective of a black man in America, you know? So I think that's the thing, right? Is if, if someone is making a story intent on having this message about distrust of the police, right? It's going to feel very prominent and probably quite on the nose. Whereas I think, you know, in these films, it's not like he's trying to make a statement about that. It's just his perspective as a storyteller. That's a part of his, you know, experience. So it's going to show in what he writes. So I, I think that's, you know, why it's there subtly, but consistently, because it, it's just part of his, you know, perspective that's coming into play and the stories that he tells. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always humming underneath the surface, just because it's real. <laughs> um yeah, I, I think those are all really good points. I And I want to also second that his music selections are just top-notch um, <laughs> from the start. Yeah. Of, I, have a, I have a very clear memory of seeing Get Out um, because I was like, oh, like, I love Key and Peele. I'm going to go see this press screening of this movie. But I was expecting it to be a little more like Keanu, which was the movie they had made that's kind of like a stoner flick with a cat. Um and it got started <laughs> and the first scene, you know, has Lakeith Stanfield getting basically shoved into a car trunk and the car drives away. I was like, what is this? And then it's when the, you know, like the the needle drop um, and the photograph start. We, I could feel the room come alive where people were like, this is something different than we were expecting and this is going to be great. So um, kudos to Jordan Peele's music supervisor and or Jordan himself. I was just going to say it it has that very much a sort of classic, I would say like 1980s horror movie feel <laughs> where, you know, it got away mm-hmm. from like the, the sort of horror movies and, and, and gore and uh, like slashers gone to the extreme, just like disturbing horror of, you know, the Saw movies and things that got really popular uh, in, you know, the 2000s and 2010s and bounced back to the, you know, it, 
invader in the house monster type style Mm -hmm. uh horror movies of the 1980s where the scores are really really incredible but it still has a jordan peele flavor to it with the sort of the the beats behind them uh as well as these sort of you know high-pitched violins and and stuff like that that you would also hear in classic movies like stepford wives or or more modern horror movies so it's it's that perfect blend it's he really is an, an auteur i think um and even though he didn't do the score himself his you know stamp is certainly on it mm-hmm. yeah i mean i would say you know i think like a lot of kind of classic horror films when you think of music a lot of times it is more that original scoring like jaws you know everyone knows the theme of yeah. jaws <laughs> but for his films like the sound design overall is very effective but what really sticks out is his use of like these existing songs and, and the needle drops and the particular timing of it where like I think that also connects to as we've discussed already how good he is at sort of working in references and like playing with kind of ideas or homages to a lot of existing popular culture I think this is a a further extension of that in how like brilliant he is throughout both of his features that he's directed at using uh music yeah, like when Good Vibrations is playing and Elizabeth Moss is crawling across the floor, yes. <laughs> that sort of like conflict that goes on is so visceral that it's that also really stuck out at me. Mm-hmm. Or the I got five on it, um, you know, with the family. It's just it's like, mm-hmm. you know what's happening. <laughs> it's just <real> right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also think in terms of not only for music, but again, bringing back these all these references and symbols that Peel just kind of drops into both the movies. In us in particular, we get a ton of Hands Across America references. Not only do we get the, gosh, the very beginning scene where you get like the 1980s style TV and you get the ad for Hands Across America. The little girl, she's wearing a Hands Across America t-shirt. And then the whole idea of all the doppelgangers lining up holding hands at the end of the film, I was wondering how that added to the film. Like, why is that reference there? I mean, I think for me, you know, if you look at, again, we've talked about the connection between comedy and horror and, you know, Peel's perspective as someone who really, you know, rose to success through his incredible sense of humor and, you know, excellence as a comedic actor is there's a certain humor in this aspect of his horror, because it's it's really kind of lampooning or like lambasting sort of performative allyship and yes. other such things mm-hmm. in a way, like what you see in the character of Rose, especially in Get Out. And then here with, it's like, what was having everyone hold hands across America supposed to do for anybody? <laughs> you know, like... It was fighting it's, it's hunger, media, apparently. <laughs> yeah, right? It's like, it's a media spectacle, but like, okay, people are hungry, so feed them. It's like, no, we're going to all hold hands and form a great human chain. It's going to show how together and whatever we are, you know? I mean, it's that sort of stuff <laughs> yeah. where it's like, yes, he's doing it through horror, but it is kind of a similar sensibility of like, this is ridiculous. I feel like that's kind of going on underneath it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I I I didn't remember I was I was 3 when Hands Across America happened. So I went back and dug into it and discovered that they raised 34 million dollars but they only distributed 15 million. Um right, cuz the cost so, of the event was so high. Right. So it's <laughs> like you spent more money putting on this, you know, very visible event 
that, you know, frankly, like, doesn't make a whole lot of sense um, to me. Anyhow, I, I can imagine context in which holding hands across America makes sense as a stunt. But this just smacks of like every every performative, um, you know, stunt to try and like say how we're helping people. Um, and so that to me, like made perfect sense. As soon as I saw that, I was like, OK, so in fact, less than half this money actually went to the people it was supposed to benefit other people got to see themselves as participating in something bigger than themselves and as being woke, you know, and then we've right got this movie that's about how, you know, here, here's like half the people living their lives, totally oblivious to the fact that there's the rest of them essentially um, living in this incredible, you know, horrible situation. Right. And it speaks to the larger narrative in us, I think, to this idea that we gloss over or we like to we're quick to forget some of the horror horrors or some of the the more the more egregious things we've done in our past. And we we go and lock it away in the the underground tunnels as in us. Um, But it like that it still lives in all of us, like it's still there, even if we continue to suppress it. And I think that's obviously part of the Hands Across America reference as well, just because it's this idea that it's it's self-serving. So the Hands Across America, like I think it was like 6 million people participated and they were like, oh yeah, this is for a good cause. And we donated $10 to reserve my spot in line in New Mexico. But um, <laughs> it's like this idea that it's like, it's very self-serving and you feel like they felt like they made a difference and like $15 million donated to starvation is is really just a drop in the bucket um Mm -hmm. and doesn't i mean yes it's a good thing and it's a it's a good cause um but it's it's one of those things that you think you think like okay like now that i did this i held hands across america and i donated all this money now that i did this that like i can i can move on um or that that's that I I've done my justice in, in this, in this issue area. So now I need to help this issue area where it's like, not, not all that helpful as, um, as we've hinted at. (laughs) Um, and I also think it's a larger narrative about us in general, it's a larger narrative about like the struggle to remember and take care of like forgotten people. Um, Mm -hmm. so the, the people that fall between the cracks. Um, and I think, I think, Part of me, I, I enjoyed Get Out as a film, as like an entertainment and a film better. But I think Us is a little bit more, is a little bit more lofty. I don't know if it's lofty for me or if it was more like, it, it just was like a much more broadly metaphoric thing. Right. Like there was not as clearly a one-to-one comparison like oh it's very clear that this is made to represent this and that there's all like there are references to horror movie tropes and things like that but the the message to me seems to be a lot more universal about history and and sort of learning from hubris and things like that. Um I I didn't have the clear sense of oh my gosh, I can see all of these tiny little things in real life as clearly as I did in Get Out. Um, But it also feels much more like a sort of classic style horror movie in that aspect. Um, So I, I, having not 
I, I watched us for the first time today for this podcast and was pleasantly surprised and really enjoyed it because I normally don't like horror. Like I said earlier, I wonder what yeah. I would think about it watching a second time because I enjoyed Get Out even more than I thought I would on the, the second watch through. And I wonder if us would have the same effect. I mean, I think us is a very effective horror film. I do think it suffers from a little bit of like second film syndrome where absolutely it's just, it's so hard oftentimes to get your first feature made. But on the other side of that is you go through so many drafts and revisions in order to get the funding, you know, a lot of times, even if like Jordan Peele, you're already successful in another area, you know, it, it's hard to do. Whereas I think in this one, you know, Get Out was so tremendously successful. That's basically like a bit of a golden ticket into the like, yes, we do what, you know, what you want to do next. We want to make, you know, another movie with you. So it doesn't feel very much very like the development process was much faster in this one. So I think sometimes part of the lack of like the little details, kind of having those through lines in the same way just kind of comes from, I think that this was probably put together much faster and didn't have to jump through as many hoops. So like on that front, I still think it's a very effective film. I still think he's a very, you know, a great filmmaker. And I'm really excited to see, you know, what he keeps on doing going forward. But I wasn't on that front quite as impressed with this one. I think the big ideas were great. I think some of the details weren't quite as impressive. Yeah. And and the layeredness of Get Out is what contributes to its watchability um, in that, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> like every time you watch it, you're seeing something new. And I'll actually say, mm-hmm. you know, because only because it was referenced earlier is that I, um, I've seen like Midsummer four times, um, not because I particularly yeah. love it, although I do, but because of work. And I actually think that movie yields up some of the similar thing, although that one's very much about like insane white people. Um, right. But it's <laughs> very much like, what it does, and I think this is a helpful lens for looking at these two films, is that it it's about um, something that's visceral and something that's intuitive. And it's also very visual. Like, there's a lot going on on the screen mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. tells you things about what's going on in the film. And I think, we, you know, we talked about that a bit with Get Out. And I feel like um, one thing that Midsummer taught me was that I have to always be looking at everything on the screen Um which, of course, is something that a film critic is supposed to know. But sometimes you forget because people <laughs> like to talk about story. And I feel like Get Out gives us that. And Us has a bit less of that. Although I would like to watch it several more times and just pay attention to, like, what's going on in the background. Um, but it also has that amazing, you know, Lupita Nyong'o um, uh, Great performance. Cast. Everyone's good in it. But, oh, my gosh. I mean, just unreal, I think. And uh and that goes a long way. And I also think Us, for me, was like a bit of a helpful way to think about how to talk to people about what it means, as we said, to grapple with history and to not ignore it. And also to say, even if I didn't personally participate in the history that, um, you know, leads people to be living like like these tethered um, or, you know, kind of leads towards that um, towards that state in a country that I still participate in it. And I feel like that's been a really hard thing to talk to people about sometimes. Um, and this gave me a way of of thinking about that. I, I think what's really interesting to me about us is I feel like it has a very different philosophy to it hmm. than a lot of American horror films in particular. I think, you know, there's that there's that element of like tabula rasa, to it, to the storyline, to the twist, where it's 
the idea that that Adelaide was the kind of person in the jumpsuit and then they switched when they were kids. And so she kind of grew into being, you know, one of the sort of people in, in the, the daylight and stuff like that. So that like, it's kind of the twist is there to emphasize that the people, you know, that these kind of creepy, scary doppelgangers are us and they mm. could have been us, but they were in the dark. And so that turned them into what they are, that they started off with the same potential. And that I think looking at the horror genre historically is kind of its greatest sin or, or kind of why it's been most problematic is the idea of how it's used to kind of emphasize or manipulate or play into existing you know, racism into other biases and, you know, prejudices where it's like, oh, yes, they are scary. And just using that in order to, you know, kind of increase ticket sales and to, you know, be effective. And it's kind of a bit of a cheap way to get scares. And it's, but it's very common. And so I think us is very interesting because it's instead of othering, it's about these others are us. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the fundamental message of it, which I think is very interesting because it is so different from kind of what is standard horror. Yeah. And we can't also miss the fact that the title us is also the initials us. Um, Mm -hmm. So yes, it's, uh, I don't know if that counts as subtle or unsubtle, but it's certainly there. (laughs) Yeah. And it's hard to escape and that's good. Well, I also think, I think I saw in Landry's notes, he uh, had mentioned this, but this very, I, b- I believe it's the scene when all four of the family's doppelgangers are, doppelgangers are in the living room. It's Adelaide's doppelganger, whose also its name is Red. Doesn't say we are them. She says we are Americans. Mm-hmm. That was very intentional. But I don't know if that's just because he was playing towards the audience or if that was because he, our Peel thinks Americans have a, a have a higher tendency to do things like we've been hinting at, um, glossing over the past, not coming to grips with grips with what has happened, or falling into this trap of this idea that everyone starts at the same place, but then th- there's like the falling into this trap of othering. So I think, I think it probably pay, plays to the audience, but I don't know, Landry, do you think there's like a larger meaning to that? Or do you think he's just trying to play to the audience to make them to open their eyes? I mean, to me, wh- when I first was, was watching it, it, it stood out to me. And the more and more that I, you know, read about it and thought about the movie in the past few hours, and especially throughout this conversation, I do think it is a lot more pointed than I had originally it sort of had hit me as I, and I think it's because the way it's played out and the way it's placed in the movie, you don't get the sort of full significance of what the film is trying to do until pretty much the very end. Like Mm -hmm. I was really curious. I was like, what are the, you know, the tethered, why are they motivated to do this? How, you know, what are the rules for the world and how it's working? Um, and then after it was all done and you get the, the very end and you learn about the, the this whole extra life that that these people that have been forgotten about and, and locked away are living, it makes a lot more sense. And I think that broad metaphor really, you know, comes to fruition. And 
I think then it becomes much more, you know, I, I understood that choice in hindsight a lot more than when I had first watched it. Um, and it didn't have like a, a huge impact on me. I, at first I was like, that seems kind of odd. Why didn't, you know, I, I, it could have been like, we are you or we are, you know, us or we are you know, something like that. In the moment, I thought they could have said that and it would have made more sense to me. But in hindsight, I do think it is much more pointed. Yeah, I have no doubt that Jordan Peele is being very specifically American in what he's mm-hmm. what he's doing and what he's evoking. And, you know, one reason I think I kind of know that is that, you know, one of his influences for his filmmaking generally, well, you know, right after Get Out came out, he um, curated a series of films at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, which is near where I live, that were social horror films. And it included one of my favorite films, which is Rosemary's Baby, but of course it included Night of the Living Dead. And Night of mm-hmm. the Living Dead is such a specifically American film about specifically mm-hmm. American anxieties um, about foreign invasion, and it was made during the Cold War, all of that stuff, even though, um, you know, George Romero um, claimed that he w- didn't have that in mind. It's sort of obvious that it it was at minimum unconsciously there when he when he made that film um and i think jordan peele's work is powerful because it's specific you know one of the Mm -hmm. i think one of the failures that um horror and more broadly hollywood films can fall into is trying to say something to everybody (laughs) and yeah (laughs) the more specific they are especially when it's commentary social commentary the more it's actually um, good, you know, like the more we can actually watch it and take something away from it. Um, And so I love that he does this. And I love that his films do function as kind of a shorthand for us to then talk about things among ourselves that might have been harder to put language to in the past or might have been harder to um, yeah, to, I guess to put language to, because it, it, it is hard to talk about what it is to live in my body. Um, you know, mm-hmm. um, especially, you know, between people who have lived lives as white people and people who have lived lives as non-white people in America, it's really just difficult. Even if you're trying to empath- empathize with what's going on, it's, it, it can be hard to understand. And there is something very special that film can do. This is why I miss theaters so much. There's something that they can really, it can really do to make us feel an experience, you know, dwarfed by a screen in a surround sound, screaming with other people um, that can't maybe come across when you're just reading an article. Um, And so I love that he's doing this and artists have been doing this for a long, long time. It's just that, um, you know, something about the cinema and the fact that it's made for a popular audience and that he's made films that are so incredibly entertaining while also really kind of socking you right in the gut. Um, That's what makes him such an important filmmaker. And I'm guessing when we look back on this period in history, he will be one of the, if not the preeminent American filmmaker of social matters. I would very much agree with that. I think he is so good at simultaneously, you know, kind of having that critical, those layers and Mm -hmm. being very commercially appealing. And I think, you know, again, it's the specific when it is done really well and in a particular way becomes more universal because Mm -hmm. it's the specificity of those details that make it real. 
And so mm-hmm. even if your experience is different, you know, it's, there is a universal or maybe not universal, but like a, a shared human experience where you're, there's just, there are going to be similarities. So mm-hmm. you are true to your experience and then other people can connect to it because it's real. And I, I think that he does a very great job of that um, in his films that he's done thus far. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that that's a really important role as a filmmaker. And I, I think the thing is, again, is that he's making these stories from his perspective, but I don't think he's really trying too hard to hit the nail on the head. Cause I think yeah. sometimes as filmmakers, you see that where they're really trying mm-hmm. to get a message across. So they're shoving it down your throat and it doesn't go so well. So, you know, I, I think he is a very important filmmaker, mm. you know, and I think that's one of his, his strongest qualities as a filmmaker. And now for the time in the show where we get to share all of the other wonderful pieces of media that we've been enjoying while we've been stuck inside. This is Locked In. So, uh, Alyssa, Kira, what else have you been enjoying in your time locked in during the pandemic? (laughs) I've watched a lot of movies, (laughs) obviously. I mean, there's a lot of movies coming out. Um... So that's that's one reason. Um, But also, obviously, you know, it's been really good to have things to to watch and chew on and and think about. Um, I will say one one movie that's just coming out now that I missed back at Sundance in January that um, is going to be on Netflix is the 40 year old version um, (laughs) V.E.R.S.I.O.N. Um, which, uh, which has a, a name that I think is indicative of what it's doing. <laughs> so it's, oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. So it's written, directed by and starring a playwright, Rada Blank, uh, who won, I believe, a breakthrough award for the film at Sundance. And she plays what is obviously a version haha, of herself, which is a, a 40 year old or a, a woman who's 39 on the cusp of 40, um, who is a playwright who had like been on a 30 under 30 list in the past, but has had trouble uh, landing a play in a theater since then. And she's kind of in an existential crisis about this. Um, she's also teaching high school. So they're in, in Harlem. So there's this whole interesting group of um, students around her and, she it's a really fun like I I use that word very specifically it's a really fun takedown of the white male theater establishment um and also of the kinds of things a little bit like what we've been talking about that pass for um diversity quote unquote in theater um Mm-hmm. There's a little bit at the beginning, and this is so early that this isn't a spoiler, but there's a little bit at the beginning where there's these two um, white ladies who are very clearly very well-intentioned, but they're excitedly talking with each other about how they're really excited to um, have invested in a revival, a, a multi-ethnic revival of Fences, August Wilson's play, which is so funny <laughs> to say. <laughs> um, you know, probably like the preeminent kind of black, playwright um of of broadway so um so anyhow it's a very funny film it's very delightful it's also very insightful um rada blank is fantastic in it and she wrote a fantastic movie which is which is no surprise so that one hits netflix on october 9th it'll be in theaters limited theaters as well um so i've really been loving that and then i'll just also throw in um that for a project I'm working on, I went back and watched the 2014 film Hannah Arendt, um, which is 
basically just a film about Hannah Arendt right in the period when she's writing Eichmann in Jerusalem and Mm -hmm. was delighted to find out it's a really engaging film, um, a very accurate film. And it also kind of covers two things that come up a lot these days, which are the banality of evil and cancel culture, interestingly enough, because, of course, she took a huge amount of flack for writing Eichmann in Jerusalem um, and for naming Eichmann, who had kind of been a chief architect of the Final Solution, as a mediocre man who was following rules. Um, and she meant very something very specific by that. But what, re-watching it, I was kind of thinking about how you say things and then people kind of put them in a context other than what you meant. And then there's a big fallout from that. So um, so that film's on Amazon Prime, I think, with like a Fandor um, uh, subscription, but it's totally worth it. I think, again, an issue with theaters not being out is I watch a combination of like stuff if you're, you know, doing festival screenings that you don't know when it's coming out exactly or it's not coming out for a while and like stuff that's like pretty old at this point. Um, yeah. <laughs> so my, uh, my roommate and I just finished watching um, On Becoming a God in Central Florida, which we're about a year late to the party, but that was enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, Kristen Dunst is, is always good. I'm trying to think anything else that I've seen recently. Oh, um, Unpregnant on HBO Max is one that I found surprisingly kind of fun and enjoyable. I think Haley Lee Richardson is always is always great. And then book wise, I feel like it's probably several months old at this point, but I read The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett, and that was that was a brilliant book. Oh. I think HBO bought the rights to uh, to develop it to something. So I'm curious to see what they do with that. I think it's a a great book. I remember reading and being like, oh yeah, nope, someone's going to want to make this into to a movie or a limited series and looks like they are. So curious to see how that plays out. Yeah. I heard really, really good things about that book. I just put it on my good, good reads list. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, no, it's, I would, I would definitely recommend it. I'm curious now. Um, I think the author has written one other book before. So now I'm curious to, to see her, her first book because I thought it was very well done. On the front for me, I just, I just finished uh, the, I guess, yeah, it's just uh, one season of Away that came out on Netflix. I know it was, hmm. I think it was trending in the U.S. Uh, for, or still is. I thought it, I thought it was pretty good. Um, it's uh, with astronauts. They're going to be the first group to land on Mars. And it's like a joint initiative between a bunch of uh, five different countries. And it basically the whole time they spend on the ship and they go through all these trials and tribulations. Um, it, it was, a, it was a pretty good show. Um on I haven't oh I want to start Lovecraft Country I'm kind of late to the game on that because I know I think I think the first season is almost already done if not already yeah so hopefully I can binge watch that at some point I was recently hiking in Zion National Park so I wasn't I haven't been watching all that much uh TV I've been trying to get outside and then on the book front I am about 300 pages into Stephen King's The Institute it's very, very good. It's about these young children from all over the U.S. who have been kidnapped by the Institute. And they are trying to figure out what the what all these tests the Institute is running on them are for and 
why they have certain special powers. I will not spoil, but um, it's it's very good. It's very Stephen King, um, but it, it's good so far. So, um, and I haven't I haven't done much on the game front since last time. Uh, I know last time I mentioned Quiddler, but I haven't I haven't played anything besides What Do You Mean since then. So uh, there's not there's not there's not a lot of table games or card games going on as much as there was back in like let's say April. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have been like seeing things uh, that have recently come out that have either been adapted or are being adapted. And instead of waiting for them to come out or watching them, I usually end up going to the other thing. Um, <laughs> I, I just looking at my list of things that I have before me, I was like, oh, a lot of things, a lot of these have been adapted, but I'm not looking at the adaptation or in reverse. So, for instance, I am about halfway through Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer, mm-hmm. which was uh, uh, made into a movie with Keira Knightley. Um, that I don't. Natalie think Portman. Actually... It was not Keira Knightley. Oh, <laughs> par- not pardon that. me. Pardon me. Natalie no. Portman. Natalie yeah, <laughs> um, Portman. Okay. That would be a different movie. <laughs> <laughs> Natalie Portman. Excuse me. Sorry, I had Keira Knightley on the brain because we said no it earlier. No worries. I just I, I literally tweeted about Keira Knightley the other day, and someone responded with <laughs> annihilation, and I was like, "That is not a Keira Knightley movie. So you are not alone." Oh my. Uh, yes, with Natalie Portman. Um, and I, I actually don't know if the movie did super well. I know it got pretty good reviews, but in in uh, sales, I don't think it did super well. It didn't. The book, well, it didn't. I can say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is very good so far. Um, it it was odd at first. Um, it, you know, it it was just a little slow for the first, I don't know, 20 pages. And then it really, really ramped up and is simple and sparse, but very, very interesting. And I, I still have a lot of questions about it. So I'm looking forward to finishing that. I'd recommend the movie. Um, I personally love the movie. Not everyone does. Okay, did, well, that's I good to know. I... I liked the, everything that I saw from the promotional material, so I'll have to give it a oh, chance. And okay, know, so that might be an issue though, because like I think that was the oh. issue with the movie is that the promotional materials and the movie are two very different things. <laughs> I don't think they knew how to promote the movie, but it's Alex Garland, oh, okay. like Twenty Eight Days Later and Ex Machina, I and I think it's really great. It's a but, great movie. Yeah, I do it's, like Ex Machina, yeah. and I like the book so far. So hopefully they'll kind of meet in the middle, and I'll be able to find something i really like about it <laughs> with <laughs> natalie portman not here nightly <laughs> uh i'm also reading uh, or i'm going to start right after that the fifth season by nk jemsen uh which is a really really amazing and well-reviewed um fantasy uh novel i believe it's the first of a trilogy as well um i've read the first chapter of it uh and then had to put it down for some reason, I got really distracted, but I'm very excited to uh, do that. And it's about a, a basically a world that is very commonly undergoing crazy climate change phenomena that takes the form of these massive apocalypse-like scenarios. A podcast I would recommend is One Way to Make an Emoji by Alex Schmidt. <laughs> Where do you find these? <laughs> I know, right? I um, it is literally about a a man who I believe is like a Jeopardy winner at one point. Uh, but he proposed to Unicode, <laughs> uh, the bison emoji, and they accepted it. And he does a four part mini series about <laughs> the history of the American bison and why there needs to be a, an emoji for it. <laughs> I love it. And it is by the time you get to the end, I don't want to spoil it for you. It is not what you think. And it will tug at your heartstrings and be what? 
it it it's very real. It's very odd. Um, <laughs> what a, what but I mean? highly I'm so recommend intrigued. It. I'm yes, so intrigued. One way to make an emoji by Alex Schmidt. Um, <laughs> you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Um, and Song Exploder, I've been re-listening to, especially because uh, Rishikesh Hirway just uh, announced that it is now going to be, I believe, at the end of this week, as of we're recording, on Netflix uh, as a documentary series with uh, people like Alicia Keys and Lin-Manuel Miranda. Uh, if you're interested in music production and writing and that type of thing, you can find uh, an episode for any type of genre and chances are if it's a pretty big artist then there's a a good chance that they've done an episode and um, been interviewed uh, and have sort of gone through their creative process and I highly recommend it Um, and I also uh, just finished watching the documentary uh, I'll Be Gone in the Dark which is uh, sort of the story of Michelle McNamara who was a, a great true crime author and her work was really influential in the helping to catch the Golden State Killer who also oh, yes. went by, you know, original Night Stalker and East Area Rapist um, uh, in the Sacramento area many, many years ago. Um, a lot of people know her as Patton Oswald's ex-wife, but she's an amazing uh, writer in her own sense. And I think as someone who doesn't, really like true crime uh, and can see it as kind of, you know, gawking in a lot of ways. They do a very, very good job of making it about the people that were victims of this heinous thing without being um, intrusive and disrespectful to them um, because that was a very big part of the way that she wrote the, the book that they ended up publishing that the documentary is then based on. So I highly recommend I'll Be Gone in the Dark. I would second that recommendation because I do go through true crime binges, but that is, oh, yeah, that is too. a good one. Yeah. I was, I was unsure how they were going to approach that story. Cause there is always that kind of, is it really like, is it kind of too gawking when it's true crime? But I, I, that one was ultimately very well done docuseries. It was odd to watch that. And then I was like, Oh, well I'll just watch the jinx. Cause I had HBO <laughs> open. And then I watched Robert Durst and I was like, Oh, this is very different. <laughs> It is very different. I've watched both of those too. I have HBO Max and I went on a true crime kick a while back. And so, yes, those are very, very different. <laughs> Thanks for listening. As a result of Jordan Peele's horror comedies, we, as an audience, have been able to have deeper conversations about self-identity and what it means to come to grips with our troubled past. As always, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock, with an E, Pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by Landrieres as a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.